You're listening to Builder Funnel Radio. This is the Building a Family Business Show with Wes and Brooks Powell. Let's dive in. The Powell family construction business has been around for over 110 years. Over that time, it's evolved and been through four generations of the Powell family. What started as a new construction business building spec homes in the Seattle area evolved to building communities, remodeling, building custom homes, and then getting involved with property management. Today, the business currently owns and operates two retirement and assisted living facilities, several apartment buildings, and does third-party property management in the Seattle area with about 750 total doors under management. Over the last several decades, Wes and Brooks have seen it all when it comes to business evolution, family dynamics in the construction industry. This is the show where I work to extract their knowledge and experiences to help you navigate family dynamics, among other things, in your construction business. Let's dive into the show. Hey guys, did you know that 72% of client unhappiness is directly attributed to a lack of communication during projects? The team over at BuildBook has solved that problem once and for all with a tool that keeps all the conversations and decisions between you, your team, and your clients in one place. Their simple, powerful app helps you create daily logs, schedule and manage your client tasks, keep track of selections, process change orders, and so much more. I met the BuildBook team in Vegas at IBS earlier this year where they were chosen as a finalist for the most innovative construction tool of 2020 which is saying a lot considering how many tools are actually out there. If you're looking to remove the stress from your projects, make your clients happier, and increase your profits, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software, plus 45% off the first year. There's absolutely no risk to try it, so go ahead and hit pause and text BUILDBOOK to 33777. 777 to take advantage of the trial and score the 45% off. This deal isn't available anywhere else, so I recommend at least trying out the software. All right, let's dive into today's show. Hey, welcome back to Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. This is episode 19, and uh, surprise, we have the same hosts with me. So, (laughs) Wes and Brooks, how are you guys doing today? Doing great. Thanks, Spence. Good. Uh, Wes, uh, I know we were chatting a little bit before we hit record, but what are you digging into these days? Yeah, uh, good question. Or anyway, a question. I don't know if it's a good question. but yeah, it's kind of a standard I'm, question. I'm reading this book called The Men Who United the States by Simon Winchester. He's a British historian and, and author. And he just is talking about the way our transportation system developed in the United States and how we connected all the states together. So. Anyway, the thing I'm reading about right now is pretty interesting. I had really never thought about it, but at one point around the turn of the, you know, about the 1800s or so, early 1800s, the preferred mode of connecting people up was water, which is, hey, we can just connect this river to that river uh, with a canal, then we can get our goods from here to there. And so it's a very interesting section about the Erie Canal, which is 363 miles long, which they just trenched out so and it connects the hudson river and uh the mohawk valley and it runs right on over to uh to lake erie but uh took them you know i'm sure a couple of decades at least maybe more and it really did connect the united states up quite a bit because it connected the east coast 
with what now we consider, you know, the Chicago area, all that type of stuff. So, and the whole goal was, hey, if we can connect, we can connect these states together, you know, and make it so Americans are trading with Americans and the folks that had actually gone out exploring out what we consider West, which is now the, is now the Midwest, they wouldn't be trading with, say, the Spaniards or the Canadians or, you know, the English and set up these other economic ties. And so by doing that, I, we kind of kept those states tied together. But really fascinating, the amount of work and, you know, it's all hand work. Oh, yeah. You imagine by hand. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, lose, lose a thousand guys, you know, to death <laughs> you know, digging this thing. And, and of course, they move their barges. They, they have these paths next to the canal and they just pull the barges along with uh, donkeys and burrows. And so really fascinating. And, and also the technology behind the lock system. You know, there's, there's multiple, multiple locks in these canals to raise the water level from one level to another. So if you're going up or down, you have to somehow figure that out. So anyway, it's very cool, you know, very old technology and obviously mostly replaced today by our interstate system and by planes. As well, we can move a lot of tonnage on, on planes today even. But still, go down the Mississippi River, a lot of barges. A lot of barges. And it's pretty, you can actually do some pretty cool trips, I mean, recreationally down the Erie Canal and see, you know, that whole part of the country, you know, on canal boats or whatever. So it's, it's, it'd, be an, it'd be an interesting thing to, to do that and go, oh, this is, you know, go back to the you know, early. So you 1800s. can still you can still go through all those locks. They're all hey, still they're all still operational. Yeah. Um, they've removed a lot of the locks just as technology has improved and they've done some workarounds. But there's still a lot of those locks, and they're all operational but and working. Even on the Mississippi, you lock through. Yeah. You know, on different parts as they you know develop flood control and things like that. It's it's to be around the Mississippi, Brooks, since you mentioned that, but the Mississippi actually that basin touches two-thirds of the states. Does it really? Yeah. So, so it's, it's basically, it basically divides the country from west and east yeah. and all the rivers that flow into it. And that, so that whole flood basin uh, is just massive. And it goes all the way from Canada to, uh, to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, so, and you think that, you know, that's where Lewis and Clark jumped off was from St. Louis, Missouri. That's right. To uh, yeah, yeah. go out and do their big, their big trek out to yeah. the coast. Yeah. What's that little town right there outside of St. Louis they jumped off from? St. Charles. St. Charles, yeah. St. Charles, right. And if you've ever been to St. Charles today, they have, you know, some different little monuments there. And they also have a great car place there. So if you're looking for a hot rod or a muscle car, uh, Gateway, Gateway is in uh, St. Charles. and It's got a cool showroom. Been there a few times. Yeah. I have been there a few times. <laughs> <laughs> left some of his money there (laughs) yeah yeah for sure (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's amazing too to just think about just how far we've come from that but then how fast things move today you know and i joked before we hit record but talking about just the like stuff like the hyperloop or you know and even uh you know teleportation is that you know is that going to be you know something that Ever they figure out, you know, if that gets down to the molecular level or, or something like that. But it's uh, that's very futuristic, I think. You never, you never know. know. You never know. I think I know a lot of the stuff that gets written in, in books and uh, and you see in movies, and then eventually it it happens. Yeah. yeah. 
maybe we won't go down the futurist path too far today. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but last week, we we're kind of getting into a pretty interesting topic kind of around this uh, concept of having a fortress balance sheet. And we were talking about kind of different grades of liquidity and, and how to really set yourself up so that you're stable, you're prepared for the future, you're prepared for some unknowns, even if they aren't ideal situations, but these things can kind of allow you to navigate the waters with some more flexibility. So maybe let's just kind of kick off. I don't even know where this, uh, you guys mentioned this term fortress balance sheet. Where did that even come from? Well, I, I know Bert, you probably know too, I'm sure. But I think, who knows who really coined it, but most people give credit to Jamie Dimon, who is the CEO of uh, JP Morgan and Chase. So he, he came up with that phrase at some point back in the, the O's, you know, like 05 or 06 or 07, <laughs> somewhere in there. But basically, it's around the concept of, hey, you know, you can miss your earning targets, but you can only run out of cash once. So, you know, having that balance sheet that allows you to withstand those seismic shocks that maybe you're not uh, expecting. Yeah. And so how do you, you know, that's obviously a pretty large company. How do you guys think about that concept at a smaller level, you know? family business or, you know, even I think small businesses categorized as like under a, you know, 50 million or 150 million or whatever it is. So, you know, depending on which, which report you're looking at. Yeah. But I guess, how do you guys think about that fortress balance sheet? How do you build one? How do you develop one? Well, you know, that's the thing that, you know, what is a balance sheet? I guess that's the first question. You know, a balance sheet is your assets versus your liabilities. And a lot of times when you run a small business, you might just run out of your checkbook. You might never, you never think about your assets and your liabilities. And so that's a good first step is to sit down on a piece of paper and say, well, what are all the things that I own? And what are all the things that I owe money on my liabilities? And see if that's a positive or a negative number. In real estate, you know, that number can change because your assets could be worth quite a bit one cycle, part of the cycle, and your liabilities are, you know, don't change into another cycle and your assets can go down and your the difference can you know fluctuate. But the the critical thing about you know a balance sheet is it's an important, it's a point in time, but it you always have to have cash flow. Yeah. Regardless. Yeah, I think that's a good way to to look at it. I mean Brooks, as you were saying, you know, as you're listing all your assets, say on the left side of the sheet, and then on the other side, on the right side of the sheet, you're listing all your liabilities. And as Brooks pointed out, you know, if you take the total of what you think your assets are worth and you subtract what the liabilities are listed on the right side, then right below your liabilities, you're going to say, well, the difference really is my equity. And that's one of my worth, which is the difference between what I have, and what I owe, that's what, what I'm worth. And so that's why it's a balance sheet, right? Because you can take your liabilities and what you're worth, and that should equal what your total assets are. So to Brooks's point about cash, though, I mean, as you think about your balance sheet, you go, well, I've got short-term assets and I got long-term assets. If you're thinking about this for the first time, so your short-term assets are really anything that's five years or less. So you know, Sprick's saying it's going to be your cash. It's going to be maybe have some stocks and bonds. It could be your equipment, like your trucks, tools, 
uh, anything like that would be kind of in that short-term category. And then the long-term category is maybe you own some raw land or, you know, maybe you've got some rental houses or, you know, anything like that would be the long-term liabilities. I mean, you know, your long-term assets. And of course, you, you can't really eat raw land. You know, you can't eat dirt. So <laughs> when, when uh, things get a little bit tough, you got to have enough cash on board to do that. So as, as you're thinking about, you know, the assets, let's just take an example, you know, say got a building company, they're doing a couple million in sales or remodeling company, you know, how do you start to develop those assets? You know, let's say you're, I don't know, you've been running for five years, you kind of built up, you know, a good revenue stream, but now you're really looking to fortify yourself in terms of those assets. I guess, do you guys recommend certain types of assets? What, what do all those assets look like? You kind of listed some short and long-term, but do you have some recommendations about how you can start to take steps towards really building your own fortress balance sheet? Well, I borrow a lot of money first. (laughs) 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 Borrow as much money as you can while the times are good. (laughs) It was interesting. I was, uh, as we're preparing for this, I was doing some research and one of the things that the recommendations was, you know, on your balance sheet, you should have things that produce other income. And I really never thought of it that way. It's just like, you know, you got your construction business, it's running, that's your big cash machine. And in our experience, we actually did do that in that we, because we're in real estate, in the construction business. So it was very simple for us to then build rental properties or acquire rental properties. and. So that became another revenue stream off those rental properties. And it was never, you know, in the first 20 years, it was never equivalent to what the construction business was doing, but it was another source of cash flow. And, you know, if you buy into real estate and into the concept of real estate, then you have the appreciation of real estate over time. So, but very, very illiquid. So like as Wes said, you can't eat dirt. So um, if things get bad, you can't sell your real estate probably when you want to, or it takes a little while. So it would just be one component, but it could provide income from another asset. And it's, you know, part of your balance sheet. I think um, a good way to look at it is, you know, what, what if I couldn't do any business for a year, you know? what would I want to have on my, my balance sheet? Because as Bricks was talking about, you know, values go up and down. So let's, and I'll give you an example. So in the downturn in 08 or 09, in that good time, you know, I was in, in the uh, mail processing business. And so we had a lot of equipment. And so this equipment could produce revenue, right? Because you process mail. And so that's an asset and you depreciate it, but it's, it's able to produce cash flow for you. But as the volume went down, it wasn't didn't produce much cash. So it became less valuable to me. And eventually that business wasn't a viable business to produce mail because really everyone shifted over to email and, and other types of, of marketing for the most part. So what you found was is that okay, you have a, a downturn and you also have a, a shift in how people are doing business and communicating, all those types of things. So on your balance sheet, you go, okay, well, I've got, you know, a million dollars worth of equipment here. So that's an asset, right? So if times get bad, 
I can just take that million dollars worth of equipment. I can just sell it. And so what we found was that when times got bad, sure, I could sell my equipment, but so could every single other person that was in the same business that was all, you know, trying to exit at the same time. And so that million dollars that you have on the, on the balance sheet or what you think your market value is can plummet to almost zero. And or so a negative same, number. Or, or a negative <laughs> number. Right? You're paying someone to come take this away. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> and in some cases, that actually did happen. But well, you know, this, this, uh, uh, this string tire that wraps around you know, <laughs> a bundle of mail, you, know, you have to have the junk man come and take it. So I think as you're looking at your assets, because we tend to overvalue our assets. Absolutely. Um, I'll give you another example. It would just be the idea, you know, we list our trucks on our balance sheet. And so that'd be a short-term asset. You know, I've got vehicles. And so you got these trucks. And those trucks are essential for doing your work lots of times. But those trucks cost money to keep on the road. And so even though they're listed as an asset, to keep those trucks around, you're going to have to, you know, put gas and oil in them, um, but you're going to have to keep the registration up, you're going to have to make repairs. And so if those trucks aren't earning for you, then they actually flip very quickly into more of a liability in, in a real sense, because they're actually costing you cash to keep those things around. And so I'd say, look at your list of things and say, what's costing me cash? So you know, Brooks brought up the idea of, well, you can have things that generate cash like rental houses, but depending on what the rental market is and what your loan is on the rental house, then that actually will eat cash. So you're, you're always looking at that balance and going, okay, what if things really go south? Is this going to flip from being a cash generator to a cash eater, or is it just going to be cash neutral? Yeah, so I think you want to get cash neutral. Sorry, Spence. Go ahead. Oh, it's okay. I was just going to say it's it's funny because as you were talking about the truck example, you know, it's classic rich dad, poor dad and thinking about, you know, he kind of defines assets as things that produce cash for you. But in the traditional balance sheet sense, you know, you look at stuff like, yeah, trucks or things like that. And like, technically it produces income as long as you've got jobs and people are in the trucks and they're utilizing the trucks, but they're not really a cash producer. You well, know, you have to, I mean, you know. and also technically, I used to always use the definition with my kids. It's like, yeah, it says it's an asset, but it's a depreciating asset, mm-hmm. which means it's going down in value every day that you own it. So yeah, great. You buy this nice new truck and, you know, for $70,000 and it's just going, going down in value all the way you know, to zero. And we had, at one point, you know, speaking of, of trucks, we had, in the renovation business, we had 15 vans going, and, you know, each van, you know, could make you a lot of money with a guy in it, but it also cost, just to keep that van on the road, you know, 1500 bucks a month, you know, in fuel and insurance, and, and then if it wasn't on the road, let's say things got slow and you parked a few vans, each van still cost 400 bucks a month for insurance and all that stuff, so goes to Wes's point, which is that, yeah, as long as everything's fully utilized, fully employed, then it's making you money. And, but if it's not, then it's costing you money. And we had, I mean, we had that example of Wes, you brought up, which is, you know, our real estate portfolio going to 08 was worth, you know, $14 million, you know, in 11, it was worth five. 
And it went from having a positive cash flow to a negative cash flow because it it wasn't over leveraged, you know, or over loaned when we went into the downturn, but it very quickly became over loaned and rents went down. And so it's that's that question you have to ask yourself, would this stay revenue neutral? Would it go negative cash flow? And just run those through those scenarios. Okay, well, how would we do that? Uh, what if that did happen? You know, if your your question of a fortress balance sheet becomes, well, if it doesn't, if the fortress breaks, how do you, you know, how do you retreat and you know keep enough things around so that you can you know you can live to fight another day? Yeah, yeah. You're always looking for those weak weak spots in the fortress wall, which might look very small, but can really cause immense damage because. The marauders can get in through that little breach in, in the wall and cause all sorts of problems. And so I think what that kind of makes me think of too, I guess, Brooks, you know, we've talked about credit facilities and lines of credit and things like that, which are super valuable for us to do our business, right? Because they're a ready source of cash that you may not have. But what you want to do is, you know, most lines of credit do have a, a term on them. So it's a two-year term or a five-year term or some sort of a term. But one of the things you want to do is you look at your fortress balance sheet and go, okay, well, if I've got this line of credit, say I've got a $2 million line of credit, and I can go in and out of that line of credit. If times are good and it's a five-year line and you're three years into that line, then that's the time to go ahead and extend that line again out for another full five years. Because what you don't want to have happen is what happens a lot of people in various downturns is that they have a, a pretty good line and they're, they're fine. You know, they're, they, can, they can weather this downturn, but in the middle of the downturn, their credit line comes up for renewal. And so maybe through no fault of their own, the bank doesn't want to renew it. So then all of a sudden that bank issue becomes your issue. If you've followed Builder Funnel for even a little bit, you know we're huge believers in the inbound marketing methodology. One of the most important phases is the client delight phase. By delighting customers, you turn them into promoters of your business and your brand. The only way to get people to go out of their way to sing your praises is to wow them throughout the process. This is something the guys over at BillBook are helping you do. Better communication leads to better outcomes. And that means communication at every level. Daily logs, client selections, punch lists, and change orders. Today, that communication gets super fragmented between email, text, and phone calls. And inevitably, things fall through the cracks. With BuildBook, everything funnels through one simple app, keeping everyone on the same page and your clients filled with delight. No more digging through texts or random emails looking for client approvals. Just one place to see everything going on with a project. And as a reminder, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. All right, let's get back to the show. So when times are good, I always look forward and try to keep pushing out the end date. And then the other thing I think too is just look at the covenants on the lines of credit and see what can happen in terms of them pulling the line of credit. So once again, what you don't want is you don't want your line of credit pulled through no fault of your own, but just because the bank is nervous about general economic conditions 
anything else that's going on. Or they're nervous about the class of business you're in. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, they just say, oh, I don't know if remodeling is a good line of business right, right now. Yeah. You know, that comes, comes down from, that comes down from Jamie Diamond on high. So, you know, right. what? I don't like remodeling right now. And, you know, yeah. done. You know, they're, they're not doing remodeling anymore. We had a, uh, a visa card with B of A with a $100,000 limit that we used extensively in our business. And they decided, you know, B of A is like, well, we're not doing credit cards for construction companies anymore. You know, gone. Right. But I had another $100,000 visa card with a different bank. So that took care of that. Yeah. But it yeah. goes to that. <laughs> it's, the, it's the belt and suspenders approach uh, goes to Wes's point, which is when we started out in the business, I remember I got my first line of credit for $25,000 against our house. And my wife's like, why are we doing that? I said, well, you never know what you're going to need. And we use that line of credit to build a couple houses back when $25,000 went further. But the, and we continue to use that theory, which is every time I could get a line of credit on a rental or anywhere, I would get a line of credit, you know, which is to Wes's point. You know, we talked about the last podcast was all those lines of credit that we had, we, we drew down every last dime when we needed, you know, when we needed to. And, uh, Probably part of having a good, strong fortress balance sheet is having multiple, multiple banks that you work with. Because, you know, one day, as Wes points out, you know, one day the bank may decide, oh, we're not interested in remodeling or construction. But your other bank, it's like, yeah, we love it. And so you need to be able to move around. I mean, I'd say three banks would be the best way to, you know, to have three relationships. So Brooks, to dive into that just a little bit deeper, I know you talked about it last time a little, but as you're drawing down those lines of credit, but then you said you were moving that cash somewhere else, but do you have to move that even say you're working with three banks and you have three lines of credit and you draw them all down. I mean, I'm assuming you got to put all that money somewhere outside of all three banks because they're going to want to try to, or I guess, how did you navigate that? uh, You know, making sure they weren't just like, Oh, you drew it down and it's just sitting in your checking account. So, well, you, yeah, you would never, yeah. So there, so, you know, and then, you know, we could spend a whole nother, uh, you know, podcast talking about banking relationships, I'm sure. But where, if you have a borrowing relationship with a bank, then they have the right to access your, your accounts. So they, they're, they have that ability to do what they call rebalance your loans, which is, we can reach into your checkbook at any point, pull that money out. So you just want to understand your loan agreements and, you know, you might, you, now it's much easier. You know, you can have an online account with, I'm trying to think of who everybody does online. You know, yeah, there's like an Amex online or, yeah. you know, so you um, can have an account. IMG or something. Yep. You can have an account somewhere that's not related to any bank, you know, any, any of your, who you're, who you have lending relationships with. And so, that would be your fortress. Your fortress should now be in this fourth bank where you could keep it. And you want to be aware of FDIC insurance and things like that. You don't, you know, stack up a bunch of money in one place and it's only insured to 250. And so you, you just, you have to think strategically about your lending relationships because when we talked last week about leverage, leverage is super critical and you need lenders to do that. And then you just need to manage those those relationships. But I think ultimately, and maybe this is just the whole, you know, as you move along through life, you do need leverage, as we've talked about in other shows, in order to grow, you know, fast enough, at least 
So that's an opinion, right? Yeah, that's an opinion. Someone else may have a totally different opinion and say, no, you know, you don't need leverage at all. And that's, that's fine too. But I would say that if you are leveraged, as you look at your balance sheet, you have to really ask yourself, leverage is always that weak point in the wall. Yep. Okay. Because that allows someone else to access your business. So anytime a lender can say, hey, you know, yep, I can access your accounts. I can, you know, I, you, have, you have to turn over all your financial data, you know, all those types of things. That's all written in those line of credit agreements. So anytime that that's the case, you've got somebody else that's kind of, you know, in your business. In your business, yeah. yeah and, and that's because they're providing something for you that yeah. you need, which is, which is cash and liquidity. So I guess my recommendation is over time, as quickly as you can, you want to, let's say you do have rental houses. Well, if you can consolidate and remove loans and maybe you have 10 rental houses and they're all leveraged and you can go to five and, and unleverage um, or four and unleverage, look at your cash flow and go, well, is that the same cash flow that I'm getting out of 10 leverage units? Yeah. Is now a good time to consolidate those units because if I do that in a good market, if I can sell off five of my units and pay off the loans on the other five, let's say, then all of a sudden I have what Brooks was talking about at the top of the show, which is a source of cash flow that can't really be messed with. It can be messed with in the sense maybe you can't rent the house, but right. that can happen with a leveraged unit. So right. as long as you've got that cash flow, if you, if you don't rent it anymore, at least you're, you're not going to lose that asset because you can't pay the mortgage on it. So that, that would be my goal over time is to try to unleverage yeah, through your business career. And the quicker you can get there and still meet your business objectives, the better off you'll be. And, um, and the same thing with your cash positions. Is that your cash or is that borrowed cash? Right. It's a good, it's a good point. And I, I think the, the challenge is as you move through time, you know, you get used to being levered or having leverage. Mm-hmm. And so you don't think to delever, and um, right. and it would depend on you. Especially we've talked about bringing kids into the business and and growing the business, which takes probably continued leverage. And so maybe some of those discussions are with, oh well, as we transition this business, the younger generation coming on is going to take the leverage and take the risk, and the older generation is going to roll out because they don't want to take the leverage and take the risk. And but as you do get older, you know, the more you can delever, as Wes says, and pay things off, just you know, the more relaxed you'll be. I mean, we actually just did a study on our portfolio and said, well, you know, how many units would we have to sell to be paid off of the bank and not have any leverage at all? And it was kind of an interesting study, but it was about, I think we had to sell a third mm-hmm. of the portfolio. So so then you're like, okay, well, great. Now I'm I don't have any leverage, it's all paid off, it's all cash flow then you had to, we had to pay a bunch of capital gains. So you have to reconcile, you say, okay, I'm paying the capital gains. And then that one third of the portfolio is not appreciating it. If you think real estate appreciates at three or 4%. So you're making those, there's a lot of different layers of decision-making. So you have to really decide what's your comfort level with risk or with leverage. You know, but I like Wes's point, which is, Hey, if you can get to where you don't owe anybody any money at all, it's, pretty nice place to be. Well, once again, I think, Brooks, I mean, that's a good point that you guys went through that analysis because if, 
if you're asking yourself that question, what would happen if I couldn't do my remodeling work or, you know, build and sell houses for a year? So I didn't have that cash flow coming from that ongoing business. What's going to happen to my other, other assets? And if you're looking at your portfolio and you're going, well, you know, my leverage is low enough. I've got loans on these units, but I could go vacant on X number of them and still meet all my obligations for my mortgage payments. And I'm, o- I'm okay with that because I don't think, you know, my occupancy will drop below 60% or 50% or, or whatever it happens to be. And once again, that's just, that's a little bit of a guessing game and it's you, yes. you looking at it and, and making that decision. But I think you can kind of go through those mental exercises and I really encourage everyone to do it. I mean, I wish at different times in my business career, I'd done more of those mental exercises, which is, okay, what if everything goes to zero for a while? due to a bad recession or something that's happening in the economy, how solid am I in order to make meet all my my obligations? Because at the end of the day, you want to meet your obligations. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think as you're looking at your long term as you take on debt, you know, look at what the you know, as it relates back to the fortress balance sheet, because you take on debt, you know, it affects your balance sheet, but also all those covenants and things that you're agreeing to at the bank affect your balance sheet because it does give the bank the right to reach into your business, as Wes said. It also gives them the right to, you know, look at your business all the time. And, you know, we keep we kept running into as business changed. Oh, we have this debt on this asset. Oh, and we need to we need to we wanted to refi it because rates were lower, or we wanted to sell it. Oh, here's a prepayment penalty that we didn't really pay attention to. You know, so prepayment penalties are the worst. You know, when it comes to you're trying to change something, so. We did this exercise on the portfolio about, oh, we should sell, we could sell off, you know, a third and get to zero. It's like, oh yeah, well, we sell a prepayment penalty for X number of years on that portfolio. So a good, a good idea when we get there, but probably not a good idea right now, you know, financially because of that. So again, I there wasn't anything I could do about the prepayment penalty when I got that debt and I needed the debt. So that's what I had to. Agree, we had to agree to, but it's just good to know. Yeah. As you guys are talking, uh, just kind of circling back around to the asset side of things, you know, it seems like the game is kind of this combination of building up assets that are producing other streams of cash flow. So you've got kind of that safety net or backup in terms of if the core engine, the core business kind of stops producing or gets cut in half or something like that. But then you're also trying to build up these credit or lines of credit and different areas that you can access cash as well. So you've kind of, you're kind of working both of those angles. Are there, are we heading in the right direction there? How should, you know, if somebody's really trying to put those things in place, it seems like it's just kind of a, a battle between, you know, lifestyle increase or building up your asset base. And, you know, oh, I don't know. I don't know, Spencer, if I look at it as lifestyle increase, I think. Well, I guess I should just clarify that in the sense that a lot of people, like say you grow your revenue from two to 3 million and your income goes up. Most people just spend that income. Oh, know? sure. Oh, well, that's yeah. a whole different well, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't agree with that at all either. Yeah. Not, not at all. Um, but I think if you think of your lines of credit or your credit facilities, I, I would look at them more as insurance policies. Yep. Absolutely. So if you think of it that way, instead of, hey, I got to have this line of credit because I'm in the line of credit all the time, 
and right. borrowing and paying it back and borrowing and paying it back. You can operate that way, but unless you know how you're going to pay that line of credit back, then don't don't drive. Yeah, that line of credit is a, an insurance policy. That's the way I, I'm glad yeah. you brought it up, Spencer. And it's, it's an insurance policy, so we wouldn't be in our lines of credit at all unless we said, hey, we're, we're, we're going to make a decision to acquire this piece of land. Mm-hmm. We're going to be in our line of credit for 12 to 18 months. And when we refinance that land for development, that line of credit gets paid off. We right. do that all the time. And so, sure, that's, so that's, a strategy. Line, that's a strategy. Line of credit can help you achieve that. I mean, you could have you could have a line of credit with friends and family that just said, hey, if I have an opportunity, you know, anybody interested in loaning me 500 grand for this amount of time, you'll have people raise their hand all the time where you have five guys, five people at 100 grand. So that's just a strategy so it's insurance for when things get tight. You know, if you're going to, and, and really what your those lines of credit do is they just buy you time. If you have a good strategy and you're like, I can see, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, how we're going to get through this, but I am going to have to borrow to get there and then I'll pay it back. That's fine. Absolutely. And that's why, yeah, that's why it just makes your freeway a little bit wider uh, that you can run in. So, but once again, you know, just keep trying to keep build up that cash. And, and some people say, well, you know, and I've got a lot tied up in the stock market or, you know, they'll, they'll put their cash there. It's another thing to think about is, okay, well, if I have to access that, if I have to sell it, you know, Brooks is just talking about capital gains. If you have to sell your stock at a bad time and you've got a lot of capital gains there, then you're going to be writing a check to the government. So in that case, you may say, well, the stock has gone up quite a bit. Can I, can I borrow against the stock? Kind of like borrowing against your 401k or something like right, that. Yeah. It's just a short-term need. And so you don't want to have to liquidate that that stock investment. So once again, though, it's having that balance between the different types of short-term assets that, that you have liquidity when you need it. Yeah, it really seems like, I mean, you really got to run that worst case scenario because you both mentioned those examples of, you know, during the downturn, either the equipment that you had west or the rentals that you had. I mean, the time when you need the cash is usually when things are not going well. And so, but that's when assets are dropping in value and, you know, it's tougher to sell stuff. And, you know, so it seems like that almost is that, that starting point is, you know, what, what does this scenario look like if things aren't going well? Because if things are good, like you said, the goal is not to be tapping into the lines or it is a strategic move and not a oh my gosh, I need this cash type of a move. I, think, I mean, another way to, the fun way to think about it is like, okay, if, if there, there's going to be a downturn, we don't know when it's going to be, what do I think the opportunities might be during the downturn? Right. And, and that's, that might be a more fun way to then think, oh, you know, I'm going to stack up an extra few hundred grand here in cash. So when we are in a downturn, I could, you know, I could buy something that was a distressed property. So there's going to be all sorts of opportunities because people are going to, people are going to be in tighter cash flow situations than you might be, and they'll, they'll need to bail out. And you're there to, I mean, we at different times were able to buy land where other people had bought it. It's like, oh, they've got to sell it. And we had, we had the cash to do it. I mean, there after the last downturn, you know, we were so you know, debilitated that we weren't able to take advantage of all sorts of opportunities. Uh, that, you know, people were able to scoop up land opportunities and, 11, 12, and 13, and we were still struggling. And, you know, 
well, you know, five years later in 17 and 18, you know, they, they saw the fruits of those investments and their earnings were exponentially greater than ours because of land value. Yeah, and I they, think, just, yeah. they just had more cash. Yeah, and all the best deals are in, are in a downturn, right? Right. Uh, so there's always a, a winner and a loser in every uh, top of a market and bottom of a market. And so that is another very positive reason to build cash and say, well, I'm just, I'm building my cash and I am waiting for the yeah. opportunities that will present themselves when other people are not able to take advantage of those opportunities because they're, right. they're short on cash. Yeah, and you so, might take a little bit of a contrarian approach, yeah. which is, hey, I'm going to squirrel away this money while thinking, you know, because we're making a lot of it and we're going to save it up and I'm just going to watch for the deals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Warren Buffett's, you know, a great one for that. He watches for the deals. So that's something it does require you to have a longer term outlook yeah. in life. Yeah. And I think the folks that do practice that, practice looking out five years and 10 years, obviously we can't predict the future. <laughs> we had a little conversation about futurists and what a great job that would be because you can say whatever you want. <laughs> no one's ever going to call you on it. But, you know, we can't predict the future. But if you do practice trying to predict the future and look out five, 10 years, then you'll just get better at at preparing yourself for different things that could happen. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, I guess a key element of the fortress balance sheet then is decently heavy in cash, you know, because uh, that gives you that flexibility to either protect the downside or to your point, Brooks, probably the better way to look at it is those are where the best opportunities are is when, you know, things are depressed and, you know, but if you go into it cash heavy, then you're, probably going to be in a really good spot to both protect yourself and take advantage of some opportunities. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you, you think about it, the companies go out of business because they run out of cash. I mean, that's just, that's right. You know, so they're, they're either they're not making a profit and so they burn their cash. And if you borrowed too much, then you either have to repay it during a downturn or you can't repay it during a downturn. So yeah, the sooner you can get to all cash, with no debt, you know, just the better life is. And sure, your returns will not be as great. Your return on investment will not be as great. Your return on equity will not be as great. But you'll sleep a lot better. So and that's that's okay. a good point about the cash and you know running out of cash. And we've probably all heard of examples of companies that were growing so fast that they ran out of cash and they couldn't gain any more cash. They couldn't bring in more investment, whatever it was. But they ran out of cash and they ran out. Of they, they were out of business. So they actually just kind of burn out because they grow too quickly and they have to keep expanding. And, you know, they just, you know, growing companies eat cash. Right. And small companies like in the construction business, the remodeling business, you don't have access to public money. Right. Just have, it's private money. It's friends and family, small community banks. And, you know, you just can't go to the, the public market and sell more shares. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. Well, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, you know, Wes, what do you think are kind of some key highlights or takeaways as people are maybe starting to think about this in more detail and all these moving parts that we've kind of talked about? What are the first couple steps that somebody should be taking to kind of start getting these things in order? Sure. Well, I think first, first and foremost, make sure that you do have a balance sheet written down and a realistic balance sheet really assess you know, don't make up 
don't make up values for things that, that don't exist, right? So really know what your assets are worth, know what your liabilities are. So I think that's step, step one. And I think step two, ask yourself, hey, if things go south for a year, what would happen to this balance sheet? Can this balance sheet withstand that? Would I be able to pay um, the service on my liabilities? What would I do? And uh, so I would start there with those two things. And Brooks probably got a few ideas as well. Yeah, I would add to those same things. Uh, a couple of things is if you have access through your, you know, your building association, or I know through the NHB, they for sure do, and Remodelers Counselor, and uh, some of those. You know, find a part-time, uh, you know, a CFO for hire, controller for hire. You know, you can pay them two hundred bucks an hour, and they will do more to help your cash flow and understand your balance sheet. And it, it, that's probably one of the greatest things I've seen. You know, people do if they think, you know, that's really not my thing. Having somebody like that, really, who understands cash flow, understands your business in, in construction, and can help you with your balance sheet and with borrowing. The thing we didn't touch on on balance sheets is on your balance sheet as an asset is your accounts receivable. So if you're in the remodeling space, uh, it's not so much a new construction where you get paid before you transfer the, the house, but in remodeling, you know, be super diligent on your collections. You know, you should collect 100% of your receivables within 30 days. You, you, no one, you know, you're not a bank. So that's something to, to look at. And that can really improve your cash flow, which is, you know, cash flow is your business oxygen. And that's a great last point, Brooks, I think, because that is something that we often often miss because it's on the asset side and we're going, oh, look at, you know, people owe me money. That's right. They owe you money. You do not have the money. <laughs> Better to collect. <laughs> yes. Better it's to hard collect. to pay your bills with the, the money they haven't paid you. <laughs> yeah. We, and if you're not good at collecting money, then find someone in your business who is good at collecting money. You know, so in our business, I was, I'm the one who collected the money. Yeah. You know, yeah, if I good. do work, you better pay me. <laughs> pay up pay, pay up yeah. yeah 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 well and we've yeah we might might need to spend some time digging into you know cash flow and, and yeah, that sort no, of thing good, too because uh yeah we covered a good chunk on the balance sheet today but uh yeah they kind of they go hand in hand and they're they're both critical so thank you guys this was good and for everybody listening Hopefully you're out there working on your fortress balance sheets now. And uh, we'd love to hear from you as you guys are working along through it. And thanks as always for tuning in and listening to Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. 